0: My name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about battability, go to battability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this latest Talking Bats and today I am honoured to be joined by ian davidson watts of davidson watts ecology and ian at the moment is talking to me from new zealand where i believe you currently reside how are you doing ian and tell us a little bit about who you are and what the weather's like and stuff like that
1: hi neil uh well firstly thank you very much uh for for the invite to to talk to you today um it's uh an absolute pleasure i'm i'm, I'm genuinely uh you know, delighted to be sharing, I guess, this this process with some of the, the greats in the bat world. And I certainly don't consider myself up there, but, but if I can add some value to your programme, then I'll, I'll certainly try. I'm, I'm calling from a, a little, just outside a little town called Gore um, in Southland in New Zealand, which I guess is the New Zealand equivalent of Scotland. We're, we're way down south, which is the equivalent of way up north in the UK um and uh yeah we're just an hour from the, the sort of south coast uh, uh, the nearest city i suppose is invercargill or dunedin is about an hour two hours away and uh yeah the weather's been fantastic today it's uh, up at about 23 24 degrees for the equivalent of late september this is not too bad
0: oh, sounds good sounds good and i remember the last time that we physically met in person uh, you were doing an introductory presentation at our, our first Social Calls conference, which we held just to the north of London, and I remember uh, talking to you uh, in the bar uh, the night before that, and you were saying that you were just about to move Lock, Stock and Barrel to New Zealand, I think within about four weeks of that day, and yeah. I was just like, wow, wow. What a massive change! Uh, I mean, overall, has it has it is it working out well for you? You're still there. I mean, I'm assuming it's working out well. Are you happy where you are? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, where, where we live is very rural. We we, we we've, we're lucky enough to have a couple of hectares of, of land. We're next to sort of a big bush block, which I guess is like an ancient woodland equivalent. Um, that this that, in, in in the district here. And um, yeah, it's great for, for bringing up kids. I've got two two kids sort of age 10 and 12 and and they're, they're doing great. It's a very small community, kind of like small town America, you know, like, like like you see on the telly and everybody says hi on the street and that kind of stuff. So it's it's, it's great from that point of view. But I've been back to the UK since then. Um, and this is our second time in New Zealand because our girls were born out here in the, in the late 2000s. So, yeah.
0: Okay, okay. Well, we're going to find a lot more about you as as the session goes on. But first of all, I just want to very quickly introduce you uh, to the audience in a slightly different way. So Ian is, I mean, I think it's more than fair to say it's possibly an understatement, highly respected within the BAT community and the wider ecology community. And most definitely a leading bat specialist, not just in the British Isles, but in other places as well. For example, New Zealand, uh, areas such as Cyprus, uh, which we will talk about later on, I'm sure, as well. And the first time I came across Ian, I believe, I was sitting in an audience at a BCT conference. And this guy got up on stage to talk about his PhD to do with the different habitat preferences of common pipistrelle and soprano pipistrelle. And that's what he did his PhD on, which we're gonna talk a little bit more about, hopefully, uh, as well. And more recently, he's led projects on mist netting, heart trapping, radio tracking for most of the UK bat species. And of course, he's now currently managing director of his own ecological consultancy, Davidson Watts Ecology. Uh, Previous roles include various um, positions in the Ministry of Defence and also a couple of positions, I believe, with English nature. Uh, Quote-unquote, the best job I ever had. And I believe, Ian, this is a picture of you in your English nature uh, branded fleece. Tell us a little bit about about that, uh, because... you seem to be very affectionate about your time there.
1: Yeah, well, th- this was my first proper job, really. I'd, I'd done sort of voluntary roles and, and other sort of, you know, small contracts um, prior to so this is like the mid 90s um, while I was at college. And then um, and then I managed to get a job as a, for, for, for 10 months um, as a, 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 an assistant species conservation officer. With with um, English nature and of course you know budgets are very tight, so they kind of renewed these things every year. And there, I'm I'm actually holding a smooth snake. And uh, in, in in those days, I mean, we had licences for survey, but but you know, you you just got to grips with a lot of different species, you know, that were in my patch. And my patch was Wiltshire, Hampshire, and the Isle of Wight, which I've stayed kind of in touch with for, for, for most of my back career because uh, I'm originally from. I was born in Wiltshire and. Um, you know, it was just great because you've got someone like the New Forest, just has a fantastic array of opportunities to do all sorts of stuff. So, although I'm known for my bats, I started out doing a bit of everything. Although the reason I got the job is because I'd already had my bat license. I've been a volunteer for it for a year or two prior to that um, uh, when I joined uh, English Nature in 96. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about uh, what you were doing professionally before you were involved in know in wildlife related subjects I don't want to talk about that just yet but can you tell me a little bit about uh, your interest in natural history was this something that you'd always heard from childhood or was this something that you developed later on I, I, what, what what was what was the catch there
1: yeah so my, my dad was in the military so we moved around quite a bit and that's that's where he met my mum in, in in Wiltshire and then we moved to Germany we spent a bit of time in Germany but I'd always had a fascination with the outdoors and I love being outdoors and I, and I started as I grew older appreciating what was outdoors and uh, my grandfather actually also military um, he he used to take, he, he was based in Wiltshire when, 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 when he kind of retired and all that kind of stuff, but, but he lived in the Woodfords in the, in, the, in the sort of southern Wiltshire, which is, uh, a lot of people know, have heard of the River Avon that runs through Woodford just north of Salisbury, and all the water meadows, and I used to, when well, I used to stay with him for a couple of weeks at a time during the summer holidays, I'd gone all these walks and he'd just teach me everything about, you know, so I was sort of age eight years old. He'd teach me everything about what was going on because he was really into it. Spent a lot of time in Burma during the war. Um, he he had a massive uh, interest in, in wildlife. And I think that kind of passed on. My dad was more of a gadgeteer, but I suppose in, in terms of bats, um, you know, I combine the two really, because the one thing I love about bat work is the fact you, you, you get, get to use a lot of gadgets. Um, and yeah, from there, I suppose that was the, you know, the, the, the trigger, but I, I probably had other passions that were probably leading my career in a certain path, yeah. um, and more military related.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that, we'll talk about that shortly, um, we'll, we'll talk about that shortly, I'm sure, um, yeah, right, so here we go, um, so you mentioned there that you got the English Nature job around about 96, I think you are, yeah. Uh, But here we are in 1991, and you you were telling me earlier that's you on the left there. Uh, You were obviously in the military uh, early on. Um, Tell us how you got to where this picture is. Um, Just give us a backdrop to what you were doing before English Nature and how the scene we've got presented here in front of us pretty much forced a change of direction I suspect upon
1: you yeah well I, I'll be up front I, I I enjoyed school but I was never very good academically and I know that seems sort of bizarre now but it's often the case I think with with uh some people like me I, I grew up on a council estate and um I kind of uh, joined the army at age 17 I I wanted to fly I was absolutely mad passionate about flying I've been in the air cadets about five years I've done gliding and, and all that kind of stuff and um but my qualifications wouldn't get me into the Air Force to fly. But the Army had this system that allowed people after a few years on the ground to apply for pilot training or crewman training on helicopters. And uh, uh, I was lucky enough to join the Army Air Corps and uh, I, uh, the unit I went to uh, when I finished all the basic and trade training, as they call it, um, allowed for local, what they called air crewmen. And because that, that was the system they were phasing out, but we had these older helicopters that still allowed for it. And I managed to get become one of those at sort of age 19 after two years on the ground
0: If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts perhaps you would also be interested in joining Battability Club To find out more about Club which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to battability.co.uk Thank you
1: Um but uh, and I, I went all over the place and we did all sorts of things and it was a great life as a sort of a late teenager, early, early 20s something. But just as I was turning 20, we were on a on a training um a mission prior to Gulf War One or just during Gulf War One, um as as part of this sort of um deployment of that. And unfortunately the the, the helicopter I was in had a malfunction and we we piled into the ground at, at, at a high rate of knots and uh, yeah this was the the immediate aftermath so that was the changing direction I hit the ground pretty hard I broke my back in three places I broke my foot and knocked a few teeth out and uh, yeah this was the moment where our sort of rescuers came to to get us another helicopter and uh, they just snapped a picture of the scene which I managed to get hold of um, to, to to at the time and they were just asking me if I was okay <laughs> and I said well we're breathing Um, and I managed to get the pilot out and we weren't on fire. So I I think, you know, it wasn't a bad outcome considering what what we'd just been through. Um, And yeah, after that, um, I I carried on in the military for another three years. Um, The flying wasn't too much of an issue because I carried on flying as an air crewman, but I couldn't really run around with a big pack and a a rifle and a bayonet, which is what they expect you to do in the army as well as being a, a crewman. Um, they expect you to be a soldier first and dig trenches and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, um, I, I, I re-evaluated where I was. Um, I looked around and uh, the local college, I, I had some children by then, you know, I had a wife. So things were, um, I was a young dad and, and, you know, I had to do the shortest course possible. So I did a higher national diploma with uh, Sparshock College in Hampshire. And it was the first time they had ever ran a conservation focused um, diploma. And I was also doing lots of volunteering at the time as well. And the boss I had in the military, he was great. He gave me a couple of days a week off basically to go get that experience as part of my resettlement because I was looking at a medical discharge really. And that, and that's what I got in 1994 eventually. Um, but by then I'd already been, you know, volunteering for the Wildlife Trust for a year. i had been working towards my bat license and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and I was just sort of 20, what was I, 24, 23. I was 23 then. Yeah.
0: So. I mean, look, I, I'm going to explore this a little bit more, okay, because I think people would uh, expect me to ask a few more questions. I mean, this must have been pretty horrific because that helicopter was coming down, yeah? I mean, it's totally unimaginable for somebody like me to consider, but I suppose it must have happened pretty fast and... Uh, but you had no qualms about getting back into a helicopter after that. I mean, I suppose you probably understood what happened, and you were very unlucky, and it maybe wouldn't happen again. I mean, what was what was your thought process uh, afterwards?
1: Well, we—I mean, the, the, the accident was was effectively we were about a thousand foot above ground level (AGL) as they call it—and uh, we were actually heading back for refuel. There was a fuel problem with the the helicopter; the engine stopped, and the pilot that I was with. I guess he, he, he delayed a little bit. I was kind of looking at the controls and uh, I said, that there's, there's a problem with the engine, sir, and all this kind of stuff because he was a captain. Yeah. And uh, and then we started dropping, as you do, he, he carried out some drills, but they're all a bit late in the day. So we hit the ground a lot harder than we should have done. The, the You can see that the front right of the helicopter, there's a seat. That's actually yes. a seat that's bent over forward. So the straps go behind that. Yeah. So you can, yeah. So you can see how that's bent forward and, and the, the front of the helicopter disintegrated. Um, you can see my face took, took a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the uh, impact on that control panel and, and, and that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. yeah, it was just, it was. Just, I think we were lucky probably to walk away from it. The, 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 the American Medivac team that we'd been actually staying with because we were working on these big ranges with, with a, a battalion of uh, the Fusiliers at the time. And uh, they they didn't think they would find anyone alive in that, but you know there we were. Um, and and fortunately both of us survived and we're here. Um, the 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 pilot he, he his leg was was in a bad way as you can actually see the swelling um, on on his right leg there. Um, so you know it's it, it yeah we, we we both sort of hobbled away and uh, yeah I, I think it's my attitude to things is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That, that's always the way I've looked yeah. at, looked at it and. Um, I, if anything, I was more of a chilled guy <laughs> prior to this, and after that, I realised I needed to take every day as if it was my last, and and never say sort of no to anything if I can do it, and it's a positive, productive thing to do. So that that's kind of uh, yeah the attitude, and I've, I've you know had some more children since, and uh, you know I've moved across the world, and I guess you know and I've worked in different places, and you know I've always regretted the things I haven't done rather than the things I have done. Is, is the way I kind of look at life.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you still fly? You were telling me just before we put the camera on that uh, yeah. d- down in New Zealand there, you've 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 got a pilot's license. You're you allowed to you're allowed to fly things. Is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So as, as you asked the question, actually, how long was it before? Well, I, it was six months of kind of recovery, really, and because I was a young a young man at the time, I, I was pretty fit, you know, and and fortunately. That helps with things like recovery and stuff so um I, I was back flying in helicopters for another two years or so uh before obviously it, it was kind of determined that i wasn't going to advance too much in the military um i had a young family so i focused all my attention on conservation then and that's that that you know and you know flying costs a fair bit of money um but back in 2004 i i basically uh I just got into a situation where I could afford a few flying lessons. And I just, uh, over a two year period, I got, I got my private pilot's license and yeah, to 2006. And I've been flying ever since and knocked up a few hundred hours now of uh, just solo flying and, and flying with family and friends and that kind of thing uh, for fun,
0: yeah. yeah. so what do you fly, what tech, what tech? Yeah.
1: At, at the moment I'm flying a Tecnam um, 2008, two but Cessnas, you know, 172s, 150s, 152s, are, PA twenty eight for those on the audience that might know what they are, but they're basically sort of four or two seat aircraft that, that you know can, can do a bit of flying around and get you from place to place. I've done it. I've, I've actually used my light aircraft for work too. Well, not 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 commercial work, obviously, but uh, I found a couple of bats uh, for, from the air using radio tracking.
0: Wow, wow! And that takes us uh, nicely onto this picture here, which is totally unrelated to your uh, you no know, to the the story you're talking about there about the crash scene and stuff. But this is you many years later, I think, doing, well, obviously doing radio tracking. Um, was this for the PhD
1: project? Was this the Shell project? Or no, was this something was, uh, else? No, was for swarming, actually. I, I, okay. So so one of the bits of research I've been doing for, for a number of years, since the 96, actually, since my first, is I've been helping Gareth Jones and uh, some of his PhD students with, with swarming. Um, swarming work because a number of those uh, uh, protected sites like sacs ssis in in wiltshire uh, underground quarries and stuff uh, like box uh, mines and Chilmark quarries and font hill and and that sort of thing they're um they're really important swarming sites as well as hibernation sites and uh, and it was at those sites that I assisted Gareth in, in his sort of investigations into swarming research. And because uh, I was the English nature person responsible for those sites, as well as an active bat person. So um, I got a huge amount of experience from, from that. And that's how I got to know Gareth um, uh, really well. And, and I continued that monitoring work right up until 2015, 2016, um, until I moved, moved back out here and uh part of this would have been about 2004 i mean i got in touch with some old mates of mine in the army air corps who were territorial army they'd retired from the regular army and they were a a unit in on salisbury plain which was i I worked at west end camp on salisbury plain for the ministry of defense at that time and they said oh look if you formally task us because i had some stupid equivalent rank as a a, a civil servant like like a major or something at the time (laughs) they said if you a, as a major equivalent although I'm nowhere near paid the same, um okay. then because um, I was technical um then, then we may be able to get you a flight to help you find some of these bats that you've lost and uh, of course we were tagging some Becksteins at swarming bats and, and I went up for the day or it only took us about 20 minutes to find these bats it was amazing okay. um and they're about six seven kilometers away from from the swarming site in in trees yeah so we got in touch with the ground team we pinned them down so uh-huh. yeah yeah it was uh it was great to sort of get back into it this was a gazelle okay um, yeah gazelle helicopter um and it was great i actually flew uh, the guy who took me out was a, a, an old pilot of, of my, my my last squadron so uh you know some what was that 10 years before so it was great
0: wow wow a full circle almost then really if you think about it from uh yeah yeah Absolutely. okay let's 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 talk a little bit about your your research. Um, I mentioned earlier um, the first time I, I saw you do a presentation at that BCT conference. Um, I can't remember when that when that must well that must have been goodness that must have been what the early two thousands. Well, these papers were yeah. published what two thousand and five round about that. Is it two thousand and five two thousand? Yeah, it was maybe around about two thousand and five two thousand and six. For yes. the senior you do that. Um, yeah. So this was uh, so you were working uh, under Gareth Jones, I believe, for that PhD. Is, is that correct? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. G- Gareth, absolute um, hero of mine in the bat world, and uh, you know, the huge. And I know you've you, he, he's been a guest of yours, and it's just been you know absolutely fantastic uh, experience from my point of view. Just just the whole thinking like a bat and and that evolutionary aspect of the stuff that because my my work has always been pretty applied you know, I've always had a job. I mean, I, the PhD took me about six years to do. Um, I was doing a full time job with English nature at the time when I started it. And I, I was a, a running a team of ecologists in the MOD um, as well in, in everything they got up to, which was a great context. I've not just always been a bat person. I've, I've always specialised in bats, but I've always been a general ecologist and then dealing with the SSI programme for the MOD. And um, I ran licensing, you know, for uh, English nature for, for, for a year or two and uh, prior to that I you know after my species stuff I was a, a rivers conservation officer so I actually dealt with SSI rivers in in. I always had this love of bats and you know that was my nighttime work I suppose you could say. Um, in terms of the uh, um, research at the time I actually like I said I met I met Gareth doing a swarming research so I'd actually published with one of his PhD students Katie Parsons who who did some amazing work on um, uh, swarming bats and it was the first sort of proper description of swarming bats of in in the uk Um, we learned a lot from that and and one of the best things i learned from it is that in 96 was a big year it was my first year as a proper kind of you know employed person albeit for a 10 month contract on about 10 grand a year or whatever it was in those days Um, and the but it was experience and that that counted for a lot um, and certainly in those days as it does now um, to, to, to be able to be, become more employable. And not only so that year Bechstein's bats were there wasn't even a recorded maternity roost in the country at that time. There were only isolated records of, of grounded bats or, or hibernation records and that kind of thing. And something like only 200 records since 1830 or something like that. And a Dutch camper came into our office in the New Forest, um, the English nature local office. He brought in a juvenile Bechsteins from Holland's with okay. camp just okay. north of Brockenham. Can you believe that? And then, yeah, the, call for the likes of Henry Schofield and they all came down, Frank Greenway, we all trying to you know find this tree that it was found on. But that was the first indication that Bechsteins were breeding, you know, in, in, in the UK. Um, and then later that year, having seen my first sort of Bechsteins ever, um, as a kind of someone who'd only had a license for about 18 months at that point, um. We went swarming, and and uh, I remember, uh, and I won't mention any names here, but a, a well-known uh, bat researcher um, pulled what they thought was a long eared out of a mist net um, at, at this cave entrance or this this quarry entrance, and Gareth just looked and went, that's no long eared, that's a bechstein's, and we saw another six that night. Wow! Um, wow. Okay. A, you imagine going from. You know that was a mad. That's why it was the best job I ever had. You know because I was getting paid for that 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 this work. But anyway, albeit ten yeah. grand a year. Um, so <laughs> that, that's, how I, that, that's 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 how I met Gareth. Um, and later on, um, I was doing quite a lot of stuff on biodiversity action planning, which was the big thing in the late nineties, early two thousands. And um, we, I was drawing up all the bat action plans for Hampshire at the time as part of the Hampshire Biodiversity Partnership. Uh, and that was kind of part of my day job and I, I realized actually we didn't you know we had this new this, this potentially this new species that, that Gareth was looking into and he'd had a, again a couple of good PhD students sort of work on that and I think it was in 2000 that they finally published the, 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 the DNA um, and it was around about then that Gareth and I started talking because so I said well, we've got a species action plan on pipistrelles, but but if there's two of them we really need to know a bit more and he said why don't you come and help find out. Um, and I got some funding through the species recovery. Um, oh, what were they called then? Species recovery. Tony Mitchell-Jones was um, the guy that kind of funded it now. He's he- headed up the mammal side in, 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 that, in English Nature at the time. And yeah. they, they gave me a bit of money for a kit. And yes, I was radio tracking pipistrelles a year later in 2001. And I did that for three years. And then <laughs> it took me three years to write it all up. Um, so uh, yeah, and and the, the papers came out of that really, and that was this this, this these foraging differences um, between the soprano and common, as they were now known. There were forty fives and fifty fives back in back at the start of this, um, paperstrels, and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and so I managed to get a couple of papers out there for that.
0: Yeah, and uh, no, amazing, amazing piece of work. You know, uh, you understatement, know, and and i <laughs> I think so, so many people uh, get involved in stuff uh, and yourself as well. Okay, you know, everybody wants to get involved in Barbastels and Bicksteins and Alcatho's bats and you know the, the, the latest stuff. But uh, I, I think you know the value in looking at the stuff that we would regard as fairly common and widespread and trying to understand that at a much greater level and in some respects has bigger implications because there are a lot more of them about, I suppose. Um, But you've done some, well, you've been involved with some pretty important work uh, with regards to Barbara uh, as well also. And you've got this paper here that, uh, you know, Matt uh, was the lead on with yourself and Gareth. About uh Barbara Stelbat's implications for conservation. And I think this picture that we've got here is yourself radio tracking a Barbie. Um, do you want to tell us briefly yeah. about your thoughts was... here? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's clearly perfectly legal to be doing what I'm doing there because it's all it's all off the public road, I can assure you. Um <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> sorry, stop, 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 stop. Was that vehicle moving? Uh well, it might have been at some point prior to that. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but obviously it's um it's very hard to track barbastels. Uh, for those yeah. that have done, they'll 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 never forget how, how how difficult it can be. And I have this almost rocket launcher thing on the roof rack now for tracking both longtail bats here in New Zealand, which I know we'll, we'll be talking about, and barbastels, which I can actually control from inside with a little joystick. It's all electronic, and okay. you can kind of move which is great with a pair of, head, pair of headphones on. But in those days, we just had the kind of Mark One arm. Um, and a Yagi. And, Iyagi. and uh, I mean, I think I've got a Seeker receiver there, but prior to that, we had these massive, great big brick things that, that weighed like five kgs, you know, and yeah. um, we're, we're, we're pretty heavy Mariner receivers, they were known as. And you, you, you 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 use dials to tune them in and stuff like that so yeah so we we, we did about five years work on the barbs here I, I caught the first barb here in 2000 so along when i started the phd i was already doing a bit of work on these other species action plan species you see so that was kind of the driver behind it um Bechsteins, greater horseshoes pipistrels and um uh, were the kind of four le- leading or species that i was leading for in my day job so I thought, well, let's get out there and actually do, do some of the action, which is find out where they are, find out we've, if we've got them in Hampshire. And I worked with a, a guy who's, who's since passed now, uh, um, uh, who was just absolutely brilliant, um, absolutely loved bats. And he got us to look at all the buildings on this estate uh, near Mottisfont. And uh, yeah, we did, we did a bit of woodland trapping. And uh, yeah, I think on the probably the second week of us failing miserably to catch other than, anything other than trails, we, we, we just got this one pregnant female barb um, in early June, uh, 2000. And it was part of a detector workshop that we we, we used to run in those days. They used to have back detector workshops. So we, yeah. we got a whole lot of people together. And yeah. we literally, nine of us, I remember nine of us and uh, spent the whole night almost chasing this one person with a receiver all through <laughs> the, the the meadows and the floodplain of the river Test and, and through various woodlands. and. Yeah, we ended up pretty much about 200 metres back from where we caught it. (laughs) We we, we worked out a route and I think we'd all been running, literally running 17 kilometres that night. So it was a big jaunt running and walking and stopping and and seeing what the bat was doing. It was hard to get good, accurate fixes. I think the the number one sort of task was just to actually keep on to it. And we did we found it under we found it under a bit of loose bark with about 10 eleven other bats and um, there's right. a little a, a, a little maternity roost there and that that then led to another four years of work where we found you know tens of other roosts all over the place. and that's where I started realizing that this roost business with tree bats is not we can't really adopt the same approach as yeah. we do buildings. it's um I've always now my, my eyes look at a woodland and I see, a big roof you know with lots of tiles and and the trees all being a tile you know
0: yeah yeah
1: and 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 if you know so just like you might pop your head into a sort of you know multi-roof building and the long ears are there one day above you at the loft hatch and then they might be around the corner somewhere um, another day that's exactly what bats do with trees you know it's just they happen to be and, and barbs you know we have them moving in the daytime quite regularly um Within the same wooden complex, you know, so where, where they're kind of covered. uh It used to be frustrating because you used to leave at dawn, thinking, right, the bat's in that tree. Come back, and the bat wasn't in that tree,
0: <laughs> and yeah. you'd have
1: a mad yeah and the bat would fly over your head from from another direction. It was probably only a hundred meters away somewhere, but you know, so you start you start learning that the bats that use trees are very different to to how they use buildings. I mean, similar in some ways, but but spatial sides quite quite different and uh yeah ecologists need to get their heads around that because i think that that it's a real struggle at the moment um together but that's where i cut my teeth on that kind of ecology because it was the barbastels, and this and then my data was combined with um matt zeal's data who 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 was working for gareth then as a phd guy uh back in the mid 2000s um doing his barbastel phd in devon um and yeah we, we 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 kind of we we studied them separately, but we made some discussion sort of you know comparisons with them. But we used the same methods to analyze the data and that kind of thing to to come up yeah. with the fact that the barb certainly for those sites liked wetlands. But since then, I've done quite a bit of work elsewhere on barbs, including Lincolnshire, and I did a presentation BCT oh at the BCT conference. God, when was that? 2016. 2015 ran, there. Oh, I, can't, I can't remember. Okay, <laughs> um, okay. And it was around there somewhere. And, and that, that was a lesson because I, I'd assumed all these barbs would leave this, this this woodland that we were doing some work for the landowner there. Um, it was actually objecting to a wind farm. So we wanted to know where his bats went. Um, and they didn't go towards the fens, which we assumed they would, you know, based on our work here. They yeah. actually just dis- right across the arable landscape to small copses, to tree lines, cherry tree lines. Um, all over the place, golf courses, it was, you know, it, it, was, it was fascinating. And wetlands just didn't feature that much at all. What I realised, Barb's, when, when I looked at the Hampshire landscape, I realised that actually, if you, if you look at the kind of the downs, which surround these river valleys, there's no structure there. There's the odd game woodland, there, there's the odd hedgerow, but actually, you know, it's, it's big wheat and barley growing areas. There's, it, it, there's not a lot of structure. And actually, it's the, the river valleys that have all the structure. It was riparian trees that, that okay. where the barbs were going because of the structure. And actually, it's exactly the same situation in, in Lincolnshire. They weren't going to the wetland per se because there was no structure of it. It was just dikes and fens and, and pretty much no trees. Yeah. The barbs were heading for the trees where clearly all the moths were collecting because Matt's work from there just showed that how important moths really were to, yeah. to barbs themselves. So, yeah, it was interesting to compare the two, and obviously I've, I've worked on farms on the Isle of Wight, um, which has been a big study side of mine. Um, I've, I've worked on them in Essex, in in, in the Midlands, um, uh, Hampshire, Wiltshire, obviously, um, and and North Somerset. So yes, in various places. So I've, I've been very lucky, and that that's that's been more recently over the last sort of ten years or so, what I've been doing consulting work.
0: Brilliant. Fascinating stuff, and. You know outside of consultancy and i know the two things sometimes it's difficult to differentiate but but over here on the left uh this is all to do with box mines yeah uh, which is a project that i know you were i'm going to say heavily involved with did you actually start off the box mines bat project uh can't As call, it's yeah.
1: today, yeah. I, I started off um, the, the 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 hibernation visits, and and I was also assisting Katie Parsi with a swarming survey. So all the swarming surveys that happen now, uh, or well, because of COVID, I, I'm not quite sure what's happening now. But certainly, in recent times, we're all based on the, the work that, that Katie and I started doing there back 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 in the uh, mid to late nineties. Yeah.
0: And that's the box mines thing. You then pass that over to somebody that I know as well, uh, Roger Martindale, yes, Um, he he, he took over monitoring the the hibernation work there and I was saying to you before we started, uh, before the recording on, uh, I've been very fortunate I've actually been spent a day in box mines with Roger, uh, January 2008 I think, if my memory serves me right, it was either 2008 or 2009 and that was quite an experience. We went, we went underground at about half past eight in the morning, and it hadn't been light that long. And we didn't come out the other side until I think it was after four o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, yeah, probably still one of my uh, bat highlights. Um, but, yeah, it was a fascinating place. Um yeah, do you want to talk well, a little bit more about that? And, yeah, so,
1: yeah. so it's a box box mines, you know, they're they're not far from the, the city of Bath, and, and a lot of the stone there was pulled out to, to build Bath. Um, so this is just out of a place in Corsham in, in Wiltshire. Now, of course, this is one of my SSIs back in my English nature days. So that, that's when I started it. I said, Well, we're not no one's doing any monitoring of this. There are 36 miles of underground passageways to, to choose from or, or thereabouts. Um, so so we, we we selected a transect that we sort of found. We've spent the first year finding our way around, trying not to get lost, because you can imagine the cave rescue implications. Um they probably wouldn't allow it now in, in natural England, but but um so but to English nature. I did a plan. I did a cave rescue course in Buxton before I was I was allowed to go underground and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, for I did it for 10 years. I, I set it up. Uh, I, Roger and I go, go back a long way. So um, when when I left for, um cyprus which i've no doubt we'll talk about in in about 2007 i i suggested that he he take it on um if if he wanted to do it he didn't live too far away and and all that kind of stuff and he'd been on it quite a few times so so he took it on um with uh julie who was one of my team members from the mod just down there bottom left on that picture of the, the group picture after a long survey um and uh yeah, it was it was a great study. We, we use the information to inform things like the grilling of it because um, it wasn't grilled most of the time that I was I was doing the surveys and um, Yeah, it's it's really important. It's actually used in summer by Greater Horseshoes as well um, as a a maternity roost. So it's got this all year round thing, this swarming thing, this winter thing, and it's got the summer thing too. So it was a great site, for really good for training because in in the sort of the the spaces we had, you weren't surrounded by bats all the time. I mean, there were some clusters like that. But in most of the passageways, you'd see a lesser here or lesser there. So it it enabled people to get some experience without over-disturbing bats and that kind of stuff. And there wasn't too many myotis seen because no doubt they were squirrel away somewhere deep deep in nooks and crannies but the ones you did see it was just enough to sort of give, give people some some training too so i used to use it a lot for training and remember when in my english nature days i was a licensed trainer i was a licensed trainer until 2013 actually um, so i i you know I, I i've done a lot of the normal bat worker stuff the voluntary side as well as the kind of the researchy thing so i've, I've had a foot in a few camps there
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Tell us about the other pictures. Uh, top top right, uh, I think that's something to do with the swarming studies. Is that right? Yeah,
1: so, yeah. so, God, I look so young there. But the, yeah, this would be going back to the mid, mid-late mid 90s. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're processing. And I, I will say that, you know, you'll have to excuse some of the non-gloved hands. I know everyone gets worked up about it now, but this was before rabies. I mean, rabies was kind of thought to be around because obviously there have been a couple of cases in Sussex in the mid-90s. Um, but unfortunately, until the death in, in the early 2000s, sort of people probably didn't take it as seriously as they should have done. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it was fairly normal practice for, for to not to handle, you know, particularly if you're misnetting and a swarming yeah. sites. So, this was at Chilmark um, in, in South Wiltshire. And we, we would get a couple of hundred bats, you know, of, of 10, 11 different species um, each night. And, uh, you know, some of the swarming sites of Sussex are very similar. But we'd also get the, haw- the added advantages of horseshoe bats there. I'm just thinking now there was probably Alcathoe, you know, and we didn't know that, you know, it's just, yeah. uh, it's, it's crazy, but we were just excited to see any of the bats there really. And that, all that data, we were ringing bats. We, we, we sent all that to Katie and she, she, she obviously did her good work using, using those data. Um, yeah. And the picture on the right, bottom right, is um, of me checking out a, a Rosettus egyptiacus uh, cave on the coast of Akateria in Cyprus. I, I did a, yeah. So my job, whilst all this was going on after I left uh, English Nature, was I headed up the uh, Ministry of Defence uh, Natural Environment team, um, which dealt with pretty much everything from developments to SSI improvement and, and managing training, you know, on, on the Emody Estate. The Emody Estate, interestingly, has more protected area land, you know, from SSIs, SACs, SPAs than any other single landowner, including the likes of the National Trust just because the National Trust have quite a lot of arable and, and farmland as, as well as obviously important sites and historic and that kind of thing. So the MOD had a huge responsibility and we were kept very, very busy. And, and I've no doubt they still, the, 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 the team still are. But overseas, we had some interest in Gibraltar and I, I did some work in Gibraltar. Um, and and uh, Canada, we, we had some guys go out to Canada to look at how the, the British uh, Army was training out, out there. And of course, Cyprus, where we had a lot, lot of permanent troops and, and bases, you know, both sort of on the maritime side, on the air side and, and the, the army. And my job there, I was the, uh, what they called SO1, uh, safety, health and environment, which was a very fancy title to be a staff officer equivalent, um, but it got me on the top table with the military and I, I could start pushing through some some important um, uh, work that we needed to do to protect, formally protect a lot of what was the, the military bases are protected out there. Um, and we introduced SPAs, and just before I left, we started the program for SACs. I've just done all the all the work to get those sites designated. My first involvement in Cyprus was actually two thousand and one, when I went out and designated a Ramsar site, because the MOD are also the government out in the British-owned bits. It's yes, a weird okay. sovereign yeah. yeah. area, the weird overseas territory that the military kind of run like a benign dictatorship. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and there's about fifteen thousand sort of Cypriots that live there. Um, including mm-hmm. this village acateria,' so this is what amazing and of course it's well known by birders because it's a huge migratory yeah. area yeah. for birders but there was not much known on the bats and, and of course Rosettus was just the furthest sort of north that they go um there's probably a few records in turkey and that kind of thing and, and they were probably hanging on because of, of people planting fruits and seeds and nuts and that kind of thing that they eat. and I, I did a bit of work on those and they also became um part of the reason for designation of some of these um of these sacs we had by, by those cave surveys we were doing um so yeah it was a fascinating um it was a fascinating time there absolutely loved the wildlife there anyone into their herpeta fauna would have just absolutely you know wet themselves it was just yeah, yeah. It was well roundabout. i've
0: i've 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 been over to cyprus three times <laughs> uh, first first of all from a holidaying perspective but the second and the third time uh, professionally to do with bat work Mm. and I was doing a uh, I I was invited to head up a bat conference in Nicosia in 2000 I think it was 2006 uh, from memory it might have been 2007 it was 2006 2007 and I don't know why they asked me to do it okay I, I just happened to know somebody in Cyprus and they knew that I was in Tibet, and I did training, and I got an invite to do this conference. Um, it was probably well beyond uh, something that I should have been doing, certainly at that stage. But I did it. But I remember I had about another, the very first morning, I had an audience of about forty people in the room. Uh, some, mostly uh, Greek Cypriots, some Turkish Cypriots, and um. A couple of things from that from that morning. First of all, I, I did a stupid thing where I explained to them uh, that the word choroptera was Greek and it meant hand-wing, right? <laughs> and it's kind of like they're all looking at me as if to say, you know, we speak Greek, we know this, why are you telling us this? <laughs> so that, that was quite amusing. Uh But connection to yourself, Um, as I normally do, wherever I am, even if I'm in Scotland, I said to the audience early on, do you understand me okay? Is my accent okay? I'm not talking too fast. And this uh, Scottish voice from the back of the room shouts, I can understand you all right, mate. And it's kind of like, what's going on here? And it turned out that this guy—you uh, and will remind me of his name. This guy, I think he worked for you or he worked with you, uh, with yep. MoD. And I think he'd been sent along, I think, to the conference just to just to participate and see what was going on and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I've gone off a little bit there, but um, uh, it's a correct. fond memory. It's yeah,
1: a, it's, a, it's a it's a fond memory for me because I remember Davy Davy Reynolds is his name. He he, yeah. he he sent an email saying, "Hey, I've I've been to this." Uh, this 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 guy uh, Neil who's who's over talking about bats in Cyprus and uh, he said yeah he did all right <laughs> so <laughs> well and he's he's quite an understated guy and uh, so that that's actually a real compliment from from yeah. Davies so.
0: so I'll I'll take that I'll I'll one hundred percent take that <laughs>
1: yeah, but, he said, but uh, yeah very very fascinating yeah, yeah so that's great
0: yeah. yeah but the Rosettis on Cyprus. Um, massive challenges from a conservation point of view because a lot of the locals uh, don't like them and they I don't know what the situation now is but certainly back then they would go out of their way to basically wipe the roosts out and I mean we had pictures of mist nets over cave entrances uh, and they would set fire inside the caves the bats would then fly into the mist nets and the shoot them in the mist nets and stuff like this and, and i think part of what the, uh, the separate government was trying to do with the kind of stuff that i was invited to talk about was just to try and give a different perspective and educate their officials because it was mostly government uh, people that were on these courses i did try and educate them more about it so that could then maybe get fed out to the wider community i I don't know did you get much involved with that kind of stuff when you were there
1: well we i mean look i mean the the cypriots i mean it was a very difficult situation because my first job out there was for a a project called project pluto and, and it was basically huge antenna arrays at the start of afghanistan in the early you know 2001 um after 9-11 and everything, you know, there's a lot of money going into Cyprus for for listening to to what was going on in the Middle East. Um and that's, you know, and 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 and, and there's a lot of lot of work. So I was actually taken out there as a, a it was almost like my first job at the MOD. I just left natural England, not natural England, or English nature. Um uh, and you know we I was said <laughs> cyprus before i said no but you're exponentially yeah yeah. so could do you mind getting on a plane for a few months and going out to cyprus i said okay fine um and uh i i kind of got involved with this project which was on a salt lake they were going to build on the salt lake and and part of the job was to designate its Ramsar site of course while i was out there i did a lot of you know nighttime stuff on bats while i was there including stuff on cool's pepper's drills, which it's a great subject i might come back to it if you allow me um, about the reliability of acoustic identification of bats. Um, <laughs> so it was a real, another one of those sort of eureka moments from my point of view um, uh, on, on, on that. So yes, it was great to, to sort of get round, but but a lot of my work was actually political. So you know, I was there as the, we're doing the environmental stuff, Cyprus, don't worry, we're gonna look after all the flamingos on the salt lake. and. The honey buzzards and, and and the red-footed falcons and all this sort of stuff and the turtles on the beach and all this sort of thing because yeah. this guy he's, he's done it before with english nature and he's going to designate stuff and i did and I, I i was given free reign and as long as i didn't stop the development which obviously was 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 difficult because the United Nations got involved, and and it was you know because the Cypriots really didn't want any more development on the base, not because of the type of development or the fact it was affecting the environment. I mean, some some were concerned about that. They just didn't want any more footprint from the British on their island, which you yeah. know from yeah. 1960 they had their um, independence except for these 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 two areas known as the Western Sovereign Base Area and the Eastern Sovereign Base Area. So, you know, it was very political, and actually. The environment was one of the areas we could really talk you know constructively you know because we were doing all this great stuff in protecting it it did get a lot of you know interest so my relationships with my counterparts in the republic of cyprus were really strong and really good and then i brought to the table some stuff on bats and and they were really into it you know I mean, things like the griffin vulture was obviously high on the high on the list because the bases was the last place that these things occurred in the wild um, and you know, because of the protection that the military effectively provided from development and tourism and poisoning and things like that, so um, you know, it, 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 there was some good stuff there going on. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think my my two years there, hopefully, there were some positives that, that came from it. And certainly on paper, anyway, the designations. But there's some massive cultural issues at the time. I, the, the Cyprus joined Europe around about the same, sort of mid about two thousand and four. So my first visit, they were out of Europe. And my second visit, when I did my two years there, they were in Europe. I already noticed a big change because, you know, Europe weren't taking any. You know, Cyprus, got, Cyprus got a lot of money. As part of that, they had to do the protection on the ground. So there's some real benefits of, of, of the European protection. And we had to do, introduce le- legislation, although we were technically outside Europe as the basis. We had to mirror all the Cypriot legislation. So we, I brought in the Nature Ordinance 2000 what was that 2008 yeah so i acted some legislation for 15,000 people there you go <laughs> and the military wow. <laughs> so, it was great yeah really good experience yeah
0: let's talk a little bit about the consultancy um, so development of advanced surveys for infrastructure major housing schemes you've done more than 60 trapping and tracking projects since 2013 and also, I know you're very proud of the fact that you are a chapter author of the 2016 Good Survey, BAT Surveys for Professional Colleges, BCT Guidelines. And you're also involved in the forthcoming fourth edition of uh, the Good Practice Guidelines. Uh, give me give me some snippets on on the stuff um
1: well, i actually started doing a bit of consultancy work mainly around training in in the early 2000s so i've always done a bit uh, of stuff uh, mainly to help buy more gadgets <laughs> like like you know, yeah. time expansion back there's the cost amount of money so i just put everything back into sort of just buying gear because you know a few thousand a year or whatever it was i was getting out of that work and so I did a lot of training so I developed the first commercial back training syllabus for instance and I think I trained four or five people in the very early 2000s um, and um, the, the 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 other stuff I started doing is I started doing some radio tracking for some road ski jobs in, in Wiltshire um, which was a real eye-opener about a how difficult it was and the amount of resources you needed and it certainly wasn't like the kind of back group type stuff I was doing on the barbs and and or the sort of but that, that that developed over time until 2013, after my first in, in New Zealand, we, we did four years in New Zealand from after I left Cyprus to, to New Zealand and then and then we came back in 2013. We set up Davidson Watts Ecology and uh, we realized that, that there was a real area in this that, that we, A, more training for, for people to get handling experience and and, and that kind of stuff, but also that, that more projects really needed to use these tools because... The sort of information you can get from this is is, is hugely powerful, um, obviously balanced against the risk towards bats, but if done well and done by well trained people, the risks are absolutely minimal. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, has, has changed a lot. So that's been picking up, particularly for infrastructure projects. Uh, but we've also done some stuff for the National Trust and, uh, you know, woodland managers on on where you know particularly on the Isle of Wight, where where you know I'd already done about two years of non-stop trapping and tracking on the Isle of Wight for the woodland bat project out there in the mid two thousands. After five years, looking at a place called British for Cops that turned into an SAC for Becksteins. um so you know all that experience was coming to the fore. I suppose to turn this into something a bit more of a paid career. And yeah, by sort of 2016, we, we were employing five people who kind of specialised in this, including Matt Zeal, who worked for us for, for about a year. Um, and, and, and we now operate a, a business where we use some really trusted subbies back in the UK. I manage them from here. Um, and, and we do a whole range of infrastructure schemes uh, that involve trapping and tracking predominantly. We, we do other stuff as well. We, you know, we've, we've done natural England church jobs and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm due back this year. To now, now, the borders have opened up again, certainly on the New Zealand side, um, to, to crack on with with obviously some more more work there. But you know, my PhD has really helped as well because we try and introduce a bit of science to to what we do um, in in that respect. So our, our reports, yeah, you know, we 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 obviously work out things like home ranges, core areas, and 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 try where we can to demonstrate how much of the development site might influence those. You know, for, so that's... Yeah. that's that, that, an important part of the decision and impact assessment um process and at the moment i'm I'm an assessor for natural england on their earned recognition program and uh yeah uh, you know obviously have 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 some accreditation for that as well so um yeah that that's been dominating most of the last sort of yes it's 2013 of my time yeah
0: wow and i mean over 60 projects of that nature that that's pretty impressive um
1: well what that that is what's the reason we well, one of the reasons we moved back to New Zealand after brexit but I, well, I won't talk about Brexit. It's been a no, gone no. now. <laughs> An opportunity came up, and I just thought this place would be a, a bit, bit of a bit unsettled for a while. is probably my, my thought processes, and and so we took the the opportunity to come back, and and the business kept going. So we we were quite pleased about that, and a lot of our key employees and subbies and and stuff stuck with us, and they've been delivering some great stuff on the ground. And I mean you know, I, we, we use, I like to think we use the best, you know, we've John Russ, David Hill, Matt Zeal, they're, they're all in there as, as, as people that, that do, do some really good stuff for us, amongst yeah. the many others that I haven't mentioned, but they're, they're probably some of the ones that have got publications out there. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's a
0: very, very strong team, you know, as, as you say, very strong team. Yeah. Uh, Recent work. Um, Yeah. Okay. So, I saw this presentation along with many other people that you did at the BCT conference, I think it was maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago now, which was all about what you can and what you can't see when you're doing, well, looking for bats emerging uh, trees. And it was, gotta say it was pretty fascinating stuff that really brought home some powerful messages about a lot of things that probably many of us felt was the case, but we didn't actually have the scientific evidence to prove it. And you kind of described it so, so well. And it's been a major uh, part of the momentum, I believe, behind us now, certainly in this part of the world, becoming a lot more uh, accepting of the fact that we need to use night vision equipment during bat surveys. Do you want to talk yeah. briefly about this kind yeah. of what I can see um, presentation and what you found there? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I trained and worked with Frank Greenaway back in the, the late 90s, you know, as part of my sort of cutting my own teeth on, on trapping and radio tracking and that kind of thing. I learned a lot from him. Um, there was an element in those days of kind of work it out for yourself. To be honest, you did. There wasn't a lot of training courses. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I was young enough and fit enough to keep up with the bats most of the time. I <laughs> think then it's a bit different now, of course. Um, so um, yeah, the, what I realised soon on was I invested in a Sony handycam. You know, one of those with had the DV tapes in them. You know, that yeah. that was you know. So we're going back a bit now because I, I'd find a, a, a tree roost of a bechstein's or barbs, but but you you wouldn't be able to see anything coming out. And so they've been part of our toolkit since the late 90s, I suppose you could say. Um, and then it just sort of struck me that, that you know, we, we, we use them on buildings, we use them on church, we use them inside buildings, you know, particularly if they're, they're church type, type, type things, because you can get a huge amount of information that way. And I just didn't know why they weren't more commonplace. And, and I realized that the industry really needed to sort of up its game there, you know, a professional industry. Um, we, we should be using the best techniques and approach. But, but as I've always been told, you know, well, we need to sort of demonstrate it through a bit of science if we can, you know, to, to sort of before we can put something in the guidelines. And um, so what I've been doing with all my team over since 2013 and a bit before, actually, when I've been collecting data as we've been doing all sorts of work everywhere. So on various infrastructure schemes, all the radio tracking projects, those 60 projects that, that you've referred to, Every time we got a tree wrist, I got someone to look at the tree and and basically see, see when they could see the bats coming out without the camera and then obviously we'd note the time and then check when the bat actually came out and of course in the majority of cases for the majority of species it was well after the person couldn't see the tree anymore certainly the prf on the tree and there are there, there some notable situations where pips and noctules were clearly visible. and there was a roost of dolbentons that had 128 bats in it and, and they came out before it got too dark because there's just so many bats but actually the majority of roost particularly species like natteras that really do come out quite late um you know it was a struggle to see them. And, and even if you could see the first bats, a couple of bats coming out, you still couldn't do reliable counts uh, from them. And even where we radio, and this is the one that sort of sticks in my mind, is that when I crunched the numbers and I said, well, okay, we had a lot of single, particularly single bats in trees, um, and in big oaks or whatever, it was particularly in woodland environments, which it makes it even harder to see the tree. Yeah. The bat would come out and even the person with the, the camera, you know, infrared camera and the radio tracking kit couldn't see the bat come out so because there's there's you know you don't know the prfs nightmare to find and so a part of a bigger picture about how we deal going back to that previous comment about how we look at woodland bats in particular um there needs to be a complete reset and a re redoing it but it's challenging it's really hard um particularly when people want answers so I think you'll find the fourth edition, and I won't sort of give too much away, but I, th- I think there'll be some changes in how we do bats and trees, in particular.
0: Okay. And I
1: think my, my research has been been used to support some of those recommendations in the guidelines. So, if I was investing in Sony and Canon XA cameras, um, then this might be a good time to start. If you're already not, uh, sounds
0: sounds good. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hint, there, yeah. folks. Yeah. Uh, and then from one extreme to the other, that this other picture here, this is just somewhere in the south. Pacific, I think. Uh, yeah. Searching for cave roosts or something.
1: Yeah. yeah. So look, well, I've got a massive passion for the Southwest Pacific. Um, oh, sorry, South Pacific. Um, okay. so that's Fiji, Polynesia, Melanesia, all those sort of areas to sort of north, northeast of Australia and north of New Zealand. Um, absolutely beautiful part of the world. Have a real romantic sort of idea about it. And look, there aren't too many bat species there. You know, they 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 number in there tens at best and sort of ones and twos at worst, you know, and, and in fact some island groups like the Cook Islands don't have any bats except the the, the the flying foxes. Um so I mean still great but they're there probably brought there by by people as a food resource in the in the first place. So um fascinating island sort of biogeography. I love understanding how bats sort of you know do things a bit like the finches on the Galapagos do do bats do the same sort of stuff? You know, and this is what I mean about echolocation and how perhaps that bats use a range of frequencies when there's no other competition from other species using similar types of echo or using similar types of echolocation, and that's my cyprus story about the fact i thought we had four species of pipistrelle in cyprus when i caught okay. all the bats making all these different peak frequency noises um they're all cools pipistrels but they were using they had f maxes and hopefully most of the audience will understand that that peak frequency frequency of maximum energy ranging from 34 to about, you know, 50. Um, wow.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, you know, it's kind of like, oh, okay. You know, I-, I thought I'd had I'd found some small species of cypress and how wrong was I? So, it's just understanding that, you know, echolocation is a tool, not an identifier. And this is where your work in social calls comes in, because I think that's way more reliable if you can get them. So, you know, that's um, it's, just, it's, just, uh, it's just something. And I, I think, you know, I'm working on a couple of uh, bats there. The Fiji Mastiff bat, critically endangered, only occurs in Fiji and, and one island or a couple of islands in, in Vanuatu, which is here. Um, and I was out there in 2019 um, on one of the other islands starting just to build up a back call cool library so, so we could empower some of the local uh, environmentalists to, to get out and start doing some surveys. And we've had to do a lot of a lot online since then, and, but they've done some really good work and I've produced a, a short report, which was funded um, you know, by a, a kind of an international research organization and uh yeah we, we're spreading that work into and we're collaborating with others like uh, bci uh, bat conservation international in fiji and uh yeah I'm, I'm, i should be heading out to fiji in um gosh october this year to, to a is a bit of a busman's holiday i suppose yeah but, uh, brilliant. i'll be meeting with some locals there to do some bat stuff so yeah love that and, and new Zealand's a great base for that
0: yeah and currently search your uh you are getting quite involved with, I think New Zealand's only got two bat species, I don't know if that's an urban myth, but I'm sure that's uh, two native bat species anyway. Uh, you've got the long-tailed bat and the short-tailed bat, I think that's I it, is it? But you're, you're <laughs> quite interested in the long-tailed bat from a, a social call perspective, I believe, uh, and maybe some certain other things.
1: So as, uh, one of the other things I've collaborated with with, with Frank Greeno and David Hill in particular is all the work I did on the Isle of Wight. There was a lot of work with lures um, and, and the yeah. success, for instance, with Beckstein's on the Isle of Wight was really down to David Hill and Frank's lure system that they, they developed, the autobat. Um, we've also used other systems. And and so in New Zealand, long-tailed bats, if we focus perhaps on those, are really scarce. They're, they're kind of, I've always joked that, imagine a country where you only have barbastels and say gray long ears okay okay that's kind of the status of the bats here so i mean i have to travel an hour and a half to go see a bat at the moment wow okay then yeah i might not see a bat i might hear a bat on a bat detector and it might just be one um you know all night uh so that's kind of how how it works uh, but the lure systems that we've we've used in new zealand have been absolutely fantastic they've, they've been a game changer for the department of Conservation. Um, because they they often spent two or three weeks trying to catch a bat, and then once they got a bat, they could tag it and then find find the roosts, um, and then do more work. Um, now we're, we're we're reducing that to to one or two nights with with the lures before they get the the bats they need. And often, um, you know, we, we we get half a dozen bats in on 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 one on one night, you know, which which is fantastic. So it's it's a real game changer. And I've been doing some research with called colin o'donnell who's like the bat guru in new zealand and uh yeah he, he's uh he's he's loving it yeah he was suspicious of it at first but i've converted him so <laughs>
0: right okay hey, i'm conscious of the timing um uh but what i do want to say here is uh for some people that come on to talking Bat, uh, we are delighted to make a charitable donation on their behalf to a charity of their choosing. And you've chosen, uh, obviously, the Isle of well, not obviously, but you've done a lot of work on the Isle of Wight, so I suppose it is obviously the Isle of Wight Bat Hospital for us to make a charitable donation to on your behalf. And at some point over the next couple of days, we will arrange that. Um, so uh, do you want to say anything very briefly about uh, the Bat Hospital yeah. on the Isle of Wight?
1: So, so Donna, Donna, and, and uh, I mean, I've got bat heroes at every level. And uh, you know, when I started out as English Nature, I was very purist. You know, I was very much into the ecology and habitat management and, and all that kind of stuff. And here I had, I met Graham Street, who was one of my bat workers. You know, one of my licensed volunteers um, who, who was absolutely manic about bats and has been for twenty five years um and he's the guy who does 60 talks a year you know he's just absolutely um manic and and he, and he and initially with me going oh well i suppose they have some use you know you're better off just putting all these pipistrels down i realized the absolute value for for public interest for um learning about that behavior um they have a high return you know uh, rate there they completely changed my view and and from a scientific perspective Graham's just about had every vagrant you can think of particle of bats he even got a free bat when I was there on the Isle of Wight once right. and we okay. looked. At yeah. and work, worked out it was a European free bat and it didn't come off a ship from somewhere else because obviously Southampton docks not far away yeah. and uh, I I was the I was a nominee for, for him to get the Pete Guest Award Graham Street so I, I you know I, I nominated him for that because of the incredible work they, they still do there and uh The amount of Bechstein's records and stuff that they were generating through Grounded Bats was was immense for my research as well. So absolutely, yeah, Um, yeah, they they deserve as much support as I could possibly give them. And I'm glad I can I can help help a little bit here uh, through through this donation.
0: Well, excellent. And we will certainly arrange that and we'll try and give them a little bit of publicity uh, in the. In the way that we do that as well, we'll put up maybe a social media uh, post about it also. So that's taking us um, to the end, and that's been fascinating. I think that's just been just over an hour we've been uh, talking. um Yeah, brilliant stuff. Is there anything? Is there anything I've missed that we should have talked about? There's, we could probably do this again tomorrow and talk about a whole range of other things but uh, is there anything crucial that I should have mentioned that has been mentioned or?
1: No, no, I I think we covered all the key areas there, Neil. And and look, it's been an absolute delight and I'm really pleased to see this programme. And, you know, I I think, you know, the way you obviously interview and and get, get the best, no doubt, from your guests, which I like to think you've got the best from me today, um, and the manner in which you do it is, is an absolute credit to yourself so 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 um, so it's so a well done Neil and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I, I yeah well I, I am back in the UK this summer and if there's an opportunity to meet up then then great but but who knows I'm only back for a short time so we'll have to just see how that goes but you know I, I enjoyed having those beers with you um back back in 2016 and and putting the world to right. Um, and maintaining, I think the whole thing about that stuff is, is, particularly for consultants, is maintain that positivity. I've always seen it as an absolute privilege to do the work I do and get paid for it. And and people shouldn't lose sight of the even for those dawns, you know, it, it's an absolute pleasure to see pips flying around at dawn before they they, they crawl back into their roosts. And uh, yeah, and I, and I think those that have really got it get it
0: if you know what i mean yeah well 100 and uh and i would certainly say from my perspective uh you've really got it and it's been an absolute pleasure uh an honor for me to have been chatting with you today about all of this stuff and i've learned a whole lot of new stuff about you that i didn't know uh so i've found it absolutely fascinating Hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited audio-only version of the original videoed session. The full version, including video, is available via Battability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to battability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.